You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. himself in hand-to-hand combat with a mysterious man. And as we come to this, we see the way in which God is ultimately at work preparing Jacob. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So we call the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered or multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Then he handed over to his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when he saw my brother meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the drove. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he stayed that night in the camp. 
The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them from the sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel denied the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Well, as we come to this section, the context is Jacob going out of the frying, sorry, out of the fire and into the frying pan. Chapter 31 is his great escape, his mini exodus out of the clutches of Laban and how the Lord stood in the gap and made a way in which that Jacob could flee and be safe. Though Laban was much powerful, much more powerful than Jacob, yet it was the Lord who stood there telling Laban, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. The Lord saved Jacob from Laban, bringing him now to the edge of his home country. Yet the worst is still ahead. The worst is still ahead. Jacob has no idea how Esau is going to react. The story, this story within the story of the entire Jacob cycle begins with Jacob fleeing because of the murderous intent of his brother Esau. And now, 20 years later, he's returning home. And certainly that's coming into Jacob's mind. What has happened in these 20 years? What has happened in these 20 years? Has Esau stewed and, and gotten angrier and angrier as he thinks of Jacob and all that he has stolen from him? Or has Esau simply moved on with his life? Not forgetting that Jacob existed, but no longer concerned over these events of the past. And Jacob really has no way of knowing. The only thing he does know is he left because he wasn't, he didn't want to be murdered by his brother. And so Jacob, in chapter 31 and chapter 33, he seems uh, hemmed in on both sides. There's fear behind and fear ahead. Yet what's funny in our chapter this evening is that Jacob is indeed hemmed in, but if you'll notice, verses 1 and 2 and verses 22 through 32, Jacob is hemmed in not by these fears, but by God. This chapter opens with Jacob once again seeing these angels moving to and fro, just as he saw at Bethel seeing that great staircase into heaven. There God sits upon the top, and Jacob sees these angels coming down and up, being sent out on their mission 
throughout the world, but likely also seeing that Jacob here is a special concern clearly to God and that these angels are there in a way to encourage Jacob. And here he sees them again. He calls the place Mehanaim, which actually means two camps. There's that many angels here. And then later, the section ends with Jacob wrestling and overcoming God and man. How will he then not, with God by his side, overcome Esau? So already the Lord is preparing the way for Jacob. And so simply this evening, we'll look at Jacob's preparations to meet Esau, verses 3 through 21. But the wider context, what surrounds this is God's preparation for Jacob, verses 1 and 2 and 22 through 32. So we come here with Jacob. He is coming to his homeland, and he knows Esau is ahead of him, the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. And so he then sends out messengers, and the, the Hebrew word, just like the Greek word, is the same word we use for angels. So it's interesting that God sends out his angels in order to encourage Jacob, and now Jacob is sending out his messengers in order to broker peace with Esau. And so Jacob here is starting to figure out a way in which he can bring this peace or ameliorate Esau's potential rage. And so he sends these messages, these messengers to Esau, and they return. And it's, again, it, for Jacob, he is waiting for some response from Esau, whether good or bad. And the messenger returns saying, well, I don't actually have any words with you, but the good news is Esau is coming to meet you. The bad news is he's got 400 men with him. And Jacob there is just thinking, what in the world is going to happen? Right, is Jacob coming as, sorry, is Esau coming to attack and to destroy Jacob for these years of abuse he feels he suffered? But if so, why let the messenger return? Is Esau coming to bring this host with him to celebrate his brother who has returned? I sometimes wonder if Esau is just making Joseph suffer a little bit before he meets him again, as brothers sometimes do to one another. But the text doesn't tell us at this point, and Jacob doesn't know, so he must assume the worst. And so he, he divides all that is his into two camps, thinking that if one camp falls, the other camp may be able to escape. And then as he makes these preparations so that something, someone will be able to survive, in verses 9 through 12, we get this great prayer. And one of the things that is lovely about this prayer is that oftentimes the prayers in Scripture are very simple. We can overcomplicate prayer, but as you read the prayers of others, if you read the Lord's Prayer, that oftentimes prayers are just very simple. In Jacob's prayer here, the, the simple statement of what he needs God to do is that I am afraid and I need you to help. I am afraid of Esau and what he can do and I need you to help. But note the way he builds up this prayer. 
He's not doing it, if you will, to butter up God. He's doing it, I think, to encourage his own soul. So he begins his prayer in verse 9 with the God of the past. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Yahweh, the God of the covenant. He begins his prayer not just because it sounds nice to pray that way, but simply to remind himself that God has been with Isaac. Where is Isaac? He is still alive. God has been prospering him and, and working through him. Where is Abraham? God was with him for his whole life, giving him the son of promise. And Abraham dies at a good old age, just as the Lord had promised, so the Lord accomplished. But then he reminds God of what he has said. God, you have commanded me. At the beginning of chapter 31, he says, return, and I will be with you. Jacob here says, return is what you have told me to do, that you may bless me, or that you may do me good. He's reminding the Lord of what he said. Now, Jacob knows that what God says he does, and that reminding God of what he said isn't going to make it work any faster than the way God intends. And so I think here that Jacob is reminding himself about these promises. We often do that, praying scripture to remind ourselves that what God has said, God will do. And in this case, God has said, return and I will be with you. And Jacob here praying is likely deriving comfort, remembering what the Lord has done for him. And then in verse 10, he speaks about his own unworthiness. He speaks about how God has shown great care. And in verse 10, he speaks about the ways in which he doesn't deserve any of this. I am unworthy of the least of all the steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. Jacob here is reminding himself about God's great goodness to him. He started this journey with nothing but a staff and a few small provisions. And now he is two camps strong. And he remembers that he was given all of this, not because of the fact that he was worthy, but because of who God is, that he is the one who delights to give good gifts, to bring great abundance and blessing because he's gracious. And Jacob will then come asking for more help. He's reminded of God's past blessing, but think of the, the logic implied in his prayer. God has blessed me in the past. He has given so much to me. I didn't deserve them, so what does Jacob do? Jacob goes and asks for more. I love the way that his faith causes him to ask for more because he knows that God is inexhaustible. And if God is inexhaustible, then what does that mean? You can ask for more. We cannot exhaust God's goodness. Actually, to not ask for more would be a sign of a lack of faith and a lack of trust in him. Whereas Jacob goes, I see what you have done, now would you do more? And that is a sign of faith. And in verse 11, we get to the, the crux of the prayer. I, I need help. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear that he will come and destroy me, the mothers, and the children, and all these great promises will be for nothing. Jacob doesn't know what Esau plans to do, but with Esau and 400 men, it doesn't look good. 
And so what does he do? Well, he needs the Lord's intervention. If God will not help him, he will be finished. And this has been the story of Jacob's life. He wanders off into the wilderness, as he said, with nothing but a staff. God is there, and Jacob says, if you will be with me, you will be my God. And that the promises continue to come true. As he's fleeing from Laban, who is clearly mightier, more powerful than him, God steps in. And yet here he is praying again. Well, should he not just not pray and trust? That's certainly one option, but he is clearly afraid and clearly fearful, and so he goes to the one who can help. You see this throughout the Psalms. David is constantly coming back to God in the midst of his distress. I need your help. And in verse 12, he reminds God, really reminding himself of his promises again. You said you will surely do me good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. You have promised this to me. So how can God not act in order to save me? Right here we see God's past promises giving comfort for the future. This is, a, again, a constant refrain throughout Scripture. The Bible shows us time and time again that when God says something, he does what he says. So after this prayer, verses 13 through 21, Jacob brings forward all of these animals to create this huge and really princely gift. He then takes, amounting to about 550 animals, and puts them in various groups in order to send them on ahead, in order that he might appease Esau. He'll say later, it's almost as if he's bringing back or giving back the blessing, the earthly blessing, that Esau failed to get. And Jacob hopes, it seems, that giving this great gift of these material goods that Esau will forgive and forget and welcome Jacob home. We're looking at this first part before we get to this great preparation of Jacob, what is what is uniting this section and the section after it? Well, it's fear. It's fear and it's prayer. The first section, Jacob prays. He is fearful and he is afraid. And in the second section, as we'll look in a minute, God answers, but probably not in the way Jacob had intended. Jacob fled Esau because he was afraid. And now, 20 years later, he doesn't know what will happen. And so what do we see here? In the midst of this, Jacob is doing two things. One, he is actually trying to solve the problem with his brother, isn't he? He is actually putting these gifts together and trying to build bridges and trying to find a way in which the two brothers can live in a harmony again. And certainly in times of trouble, that's what we're called to do. There is things that we can do. And those things aren't wrong. What Jacob does of dividing into two camps and sending gifts on ahead seems actually perfectly reasonable. But the second thing he does is he prays. For he knows that no matter what he does, if the Lord is not with him, if the Lord does not intervene and the Lord doesn't help, that all his preparation perfectly reasonable, will come to nothing. 
Esau can still come in at a great pace and slaughter the first camp and what very quickly make it over to the second camp. He could completely wipe out the entirety of this gift in his rage in order to make Jacob pay. And so Jacob, he acts and prays. And there seems a sense where he then rests. There's a sense where it looks as if Jacob's just simply done all that he can at this point. While the text doesn't say this, we do see this in the Psalms again, in the life of David, who is under threat, he prays, and then the most miraculous thing happens. He sleeps. We see this in the life of Jesus. He's in great distress. He prays, and then he trusts. He makes his way to the cross. We see this in our own life, times of distress. Where do we derive comfort? Well, we derive it from prayer. But we also come to God. We pray, not just because he tells us to pray, not because it's good for us to pray, not because it helps our communion with the Lord. All of those things are true, but we also pray because God answers prayers. And that is what Jacob is needing. He needs that knowledge, he needs that communion, he needs that rest, but he does need God to answer that prayer. And so we come, this is Jacob's preparation. We come to verses 1 through 2 and 22 through 32 of God's preparation for Jacob. Verses 1 and 2 seem to act as a, a hinge point between what came before it and what comes after it. Jacob is on his way, and before he begins the preparation of meeting with Esau, and after he has left the company of Laban, he sees all of these angels. And it reminds us of the time when he was at Bethel. John Calvin makes a, a humorous point that those who think we have but one guardian angel do God a great disservice. We trample upon his grace. For here there is a great multitude of angels, two camps at least worth, that are here shown to Jacob to see once again God's abundant generosity. But the other thing that I love about this section here is that where did Jacob meet with God before he was at Bethel? And where is Jacob now? He's not at Bethel. He's at a new place, which he names Mahanaim. That here we see God was with Jacob at Bethel. God was with Jacob, as he says, when he was in Haran with his chief of a father-in-law. And now as he returns in Mahanaim, God is with him. God is never restricted by geography. And so these angels remind him of God's care for him. But then in verse 22 through 33, we get an even well, a more interesting way in which God shows his care for Jacob. And we have to think through this text, right? This, this text before us is about fear. That's why Jacob splits the camps. That's why Jacob sends the gifts. That's why Jacob prays, because he is simply afraid. And he has every right to be afraid. When we think about this, as we'll look into this, there's certainly that question for us this evening. What are you afraid of? What is it that you fear? What is that it that keeps you up at night? But we all have those things. We live in a world that is rightfully to be feared. There are so many things that can happen on a given day. 
And what do we see? Well, we see Jacob who prays and he acts. But fascinatingly, we see a God who responds, but not in the way Jacob was intending. And if I were in Jacob's shoes, probably not in the way I would have wanted. Oftentimes when I pray and need God's help and his guidance, I assume that he will take out some large advertisement in some area and just tell me simply the answer that I need. And think about that. He could have just written in the skies, Jacob, it will be okay. Esau is coming and he will be friendly. He, he could have simply done that. And I often think, Lord, if you would just tell me what I'm supposed to do, that would make this go a whole lot easier. But that's not what he does. It's much like the prophets when he is commissioning them for their work, like Isaiah and Ezekiel. He tells them, you've got a difficult task ahead. You have a, a great amount of reasons to be afraid, and you're going to have a very difficult job. But how does he begin their ministries? He begins their ministries by showing them who he is in all his glory. Isaiah finds himself in the temple where God's robes seem to fill up there. There are angels, there are seraphims, the burning ones all around. There is lightning, there is smoke, there is fear. And out of this, God speaks. Ezekiel sees this great vision of this heavenly throne, this kind of mobile war chariot. And again, you have angels, you have smoke, you have lightning, you have what looks to be this great storm on the horizon. There, Ezekiel, in all of his smallness, looking on at this great vision. Or think of Revelation. The church is being persecuted. And what does John see? He doesn't see a happy, smiling Jesus that the Renaissance paintings depict. He sees Jesus in all his resurrected glory, feet of burnished bronze, hair glowing white, fire in his eyes. He sees the glory and the glorified Jesus, and John falls at his feet as though dead. And what does he do? He gives his people a greater fear. He gives them a fear of someone, of he who is greater than all of their fears. So at the beginning of the section, Jacob finds himself alone. It is nighttime, he is away from his camp, and then out of nowhere comes a man, and he begins wrestling with Jacob. And it brings up so many questions. You have this man here, and who is he? Who is it that is wrestling with Jacob? Is it an angel? Is it the angel of the Lord? Is, is it the pre-incarnate Jesus? If you look through commentaries, you'll find some very interesting options. But the historic understanding and the way the text seems to clearly speak is that this is God. Later, Jacob will say, I have seen the face of God and lived. Hosea 12 speaks of this as an angel, that this is clearly not a human being. And likely then, if it is the angel of the Lord, which I think that it is, then it's very possible this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. But either way, the point of the text is here, God is wrestling with Jacob that night. And this also is clearly not a dream, for Jacob will walk away with a very real limb. So who is Jacob wrestling? He is wrestling with 
Well, that then brings another question. Why does this man then, who is God, not win? Even if it was just an angel, clearly an angel would be able to overpower a simple man. And the point has to be to prove a point, as we'll see later with the change in the name. That it was to prove a point, it was to push Jacob to the edge of perseverance. It was to test him. Because we can also see that it wasn't because this being with whom Jacob wrestled lacked the strength to be able to win, because it seems that he simply just touches Jacob's hip socket, and it seems to permanently dislocate itself. So it's not just a dislocated hip, it seems to be a permanent injury that Jacob has as a reminder. Well then why does this being need to be released before daybreak? As he says, let me go, for it is almost daylight. Again, it's likely here that this is the Lord God wrestling with Jacob. And at nighttime, Jacob seems to think he's just wrestling with a man, though it continues, and then his hip is dislocated, and as day begins to dawn, it seems to be dawning on Jacob that this is not an ordinary encounter. Or later he'll ask for blessing. And so throughout this text, God seems to be forcing Jacob to persevere, doesn't he? Jacob could have given up at any time, though it's likely that for Jacob this is a life and death encounter. So he continues to fight. He continues to hold on even after his hip is dislocated. That this blessing he obtains is one that was hard wrought. And then this angel, here God before him, asks him about his name. And here his name is changed from Jacob, trickster or heel grabber, to Israel. Here we have something akin to Abraham becoming Abraham. And it does seem that at the end when we hear this, uh, again, strange thing that Israel does of not eating the hip socket because that's where he has been touched. That it's just simply signifying that this is a momentous event in the life of God's people. That here Jacob's now new name really comes from and derived from the word to struggle. You could almost literally translate it as El or God fights. But God interprets it for him as he who has struggled with God and man and overcome. For he struggled with man and God and has overcome. In verses 29 through 30, then Jacob responds wanting to know his assailant's name, but realizing his need to be blessed by him, and he is indeed blessed. And we have what looks to be a sign that Israel commemorates this event by remembering what God has done. In some sense, verses 31 and 32 seem so strange that they just must be true. That Israel remembers this time. Well, here God is preparing Jacob. He has been preparing him his whole life. And here he is giving the answer to his fear, which is simply to fear something more than what you currently fear. God has stayed Laban's hand. God has shown Jacob that he, Jacob, has overcome, right? Not by his own might, but because 
of God. What has Jacob to fear now? His name now will be a permanent reminder to him. Others will call him Israel. He will begin referring to himself as Israel. And he will be remembering the time, because his hip will likely hurt, of how he overcame, how he persevered, and how the Lord was with him. And he renames the place Peniel, or have seen God face to face and yet lived. He will remember that time all the days of his life. Coming back to that great verse in Revelation. In Revelation 1, 18, in the midst of great persecution, there's this great desire to capitulate to the world. And we're given this picture of Jesus in all his glory. He stands there holding the keys of death and Hades. I am the one who has overcome. I am the one who has conquered. I am the one standing in the midst of my churches with all power and authority before me. And that is the picture that he gives to his church. It's not one of, uh, not, not one of a, a great leader leading his troops, one who is to be more feared than all the Roman emperors, one who is to be seen as he who has all this power like the general leading his troops, to remind his people, the church of God, bearing his arm to Laban who relented. And God unfurling his wrath against Pharaoh who didn't. And the book of Revelation continues to go through this great theme of God and his judgment upon those who come against his people. Jesus says in his ministry, doesn't he? Don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. For God has all power, might, and majesty. And he uses it for his glory and the good of his church. So we should ask ourselves, really, what are we afraid of now? You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S, dot co, dot U-K.